We're kind of coming back uh, to visit a couple of uh, spots in Luke before we move along uh, next Sunday toward the very end of Luke's Gospel. And um, going back to chapter 13, it's kind of a time when Jesus ministered in the area of Jerusalem and then He left. And He doesn't return until... Uh, He comes back on this Sunday that we commemorate His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Luke tells us about that uh, somewhat meandering journey that He makes uh, back from the north country, uh, winding His way back toward Jerusalem, visiting one town after another, and ministering from place to place. I noted in the introduction to the message this morning that um, it's more of a destiny than a destination. It's more of a philosophical trip, as it were, than it is simply uh, traveling a road. He's not in a hurry. Uh, He isn't making a straight shot. A lot of times we have somewhere to go, we need to get there, and we get on the interstate and Uh, Zoom. We want to go right to that place. But Jesus is not so much interested in that as He is in uh, taking His time to very carefully uh, choose His course down uh, through the whole region uh, of Israel uh, before He comes again to Jerusalem. And along that journey, He uh, preaches the good news of the kingdom, He heals the sick, even raises the dead. He casts out demons. Uh, He demonstrates the power of the gospel. He commissions and empowers his disciples. And it's kind of like the last year or so of their training. But in Luke chapter 13, uh, verse uh, 34, uh, the scripture um, says that um, my page got turned. There we go. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house has left you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me again until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is one of those prophecies that is actually fulfilled within the very lifetime of Jesus. Because as He leaves Jerusalem, in the middle of His ministry, uh, shall we say, He says, I'm not coming back here until I come back and, and there is the cry, Blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord. And that is actually a foretaste, a, a, a vision of that day today uh, that we celebrate when He is going to go back into Jerusalem. And as He goes back, uh, they will be saying this very thing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord. But as Jesus contemplates um, Jerusalem, I've called it a bittersweet processional. Because as he contemplates it here, he says, how many times, how many times I would have gathered you to gather uh, the way a mother hen gathers her chicks. How many times I would have folded you under my wings. How many times I would have 
drawn you close to my heart and provided shelter and comfort and nurture and protection. You know, I wonder, as I consider that statement, if Jesus was merely looking at His experience of Jerusalem since the Incarnation, or if He was not, in fact, looking back all the way through history, at the history of Israel, and saying from the Father's heart, how many times, how many times, I wanted to draw you to my heart. And you would not do it. Again and again, I invited you. And you would not come. And so he says to them on that occasion, you will not see me again until I come back and you cry, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And so we fast forward to Luke chapter 19. And in Luke 19, we have the occasion where Jesus is entering the city from the Jericho Road. And I want to take you back, uh, if I can, in your mind's eye, to this trip. It's a very unusual journey. Jericho, uh, I'm told, is the lowest place on earth. Uh, It's way down there. It's at least a thousand feet below sea level. Uh, It's a long way down. And Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level. So from Jericho to Jerusalem is a climb of a kilometer, about a thousand meters or 3,300 feet. It's a long way from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And as you begin that trip, it's only about 14 miles on the straight, but it's going up and down and uh, over the Kidron and various uh, other uh, plateaus and valleys and whatever. And so as you uh, go up and down, it's actually a journey of about 18 miles. But in that 18-mile journey, you're constantly... Well, not constantly climbing because there are a few dips along the way, but you're basically ascending uh, an entire kilometer in altitude from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And as you go from Jericho toward Jerusalem, the last highest point that you hit, which is actually a little higher than Jerusalem, is you come uh, to the Mount of Olives. You've been winding your way along, around, and twists and turns, and gradually moving up. But you come to the Mount of Olives, and as you crest the Mount of Olives, you can look down across the Kidron Valley and see the holy city Jerusalem stretched out before you. And you can take in the view of the entire city. The Scripture tells us that it was on the Mount of Olives that Jesus... Uh, sent for the colt, and it was that last leg of the journey that they brought him the colt of a donkey, and they uh, prepared the way and began to throw down the palm branches and the clothing uh, to pave the way for the king to come into Jerusalem. But the thing that really uh, stirred my heart as I considered this dramatic scene is all that must have been going on 
in the heart and mind of Jesus. I don't think this was, again, merely the culmination of his ministry. I don't think it was merely the final trip to Jerusalem uh, in all of his uh, various travels. Jesus is going to the cross. And it is a destiny that has been his from before the foundation of the world. God, in his foreknowledge, knowing that human beings would turn from him and go their own way, and in his love for them that he would provide a way back, Jesus had been anticipating the cross from the very creation of Adam and Eve. He had been looking to Jerusalem. He had been anticipating this final journey. And throughout all of the Old Testament, a period that up until now has been about 4,000 years, give or take a few hundred from the creation of Adam until the time that Jesus uh, crests the Mount of Olives and looks down on the city of Jerusalem. Throughout that whole period of time, God has been pursuing human beings. And in order to make it possible for true reconciliation to occur, in order to make it possible for sins to be genuinely forgiven and and wiped away, in order for it to be possible to be restored to total fellowship with God, there had to be the cross. And yet, throughout all of that time, as God has been pursuing human beings, they have been running from Him. And so, as I thought about Jesus cresting the Mount of Olives and looking down over that holy city, I think all of these things were going through his mind. Knowing what was going to be coming to Jerusalem, knowing that they would reject him yet once again, knowing that in doing so, ultimately, that city would be destroyed by Rome, and that for two millennia, God's people, the Jews, would be scattered over the face of the planet, and they would suffer immeasurably throughout history. I think he could not only see prophetically the destruction of Jerusalem, but the various purges and persecutions that happened throughout the years, even with Hitler and the horrible persecution of the Jews in the middle of the last century. And he realized the price they would pay for their rejection. And so on this triumphal moment, when all the people are beginning to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus begins to weep. 
his heart is breaking for a people that have persistently rejected the love of God. Have you ever considered trying to put yourself in Jesus' shoes? Have you ever tried to get into his heart and see it the way he was seeing it? And this very crowd that's crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Well, a week later, many of them are going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas and have done with him. They're fickle. They're undependable. Their love is superficial. They're looking for something other than a relationship. They're simply looking for some temporal blessing and benefit. And when he doesn't come through, they want nothing to do with him. How does God see the world? Every time I think about if I could see this world through your eyes, dear Lord, I, I have a dear friend uh, back from Tennessee days that I remember him singing a song. There's actually a song by that title. Um, if I could see this world through your eyes, dear Lord, I know that I would serve you more faithfully. And it, it talks about putting yourself into uh, the heart and life of Jesus and going with him through the garden and going with him to the cross and seeing uh, his love and compassion for people. If I could see the world the way you see it, I know I would serve you uh, more faithfully. When you look back through the history of humanity, and, and by the way, we, we often struggle with the idea that uh, somehow uh, evil is in the world and, and it's sort of God's fault. And if he really were a powerful God, he could do something about it and he could fix all this broken stuff. And uh, why does he let all these things happen? And how come uh, bad things happen to good people? And on and on it goes. By the way, uh, bad things don't happen to good people. Because there are no good people. Uh, You've you got you to gotta get your theology straight. Um, some of us look better than others, maybe. But we've all got a problem. It's a sin problem. And if you go all the way back to the beginning and you look at uh, God's creation of Adam and Eve, uh, you've heard me say this before, but it's just so important. I, I can't say it enough. We need to get it drilled into our hearts and minds so that when things go awry, uh, we can get our head around it and we can understand God's love and compassion for us in the midst of trouble and difficulty. God made Adam and Eve with a, with a choice. They had a free will. And it was absolutely essential. There can be no love where there's no choice. You, you, you realize that, right? If someone has to love you, how, how, how would you feel about that? 
I love you, honey. Yeah, I know, you don't have any choice about it. There's, there's no love there. There's no choice. There's no value. When something does reflexively what it's programmed to do, there's no volition involved in that. It's just a reaction. And if you believe the evolutionary biologist, that's how life happens. Love is a chemical experience that happens in order to drive us towards sexuality, which keeps the race going. There's no real feeling associated with it. It's just biology. How does that make you feel? And when you die, you're done. You just go back to dirt. And there's no meaning to your life. You didn't choose to get here. You don't choose where you're going. Uh, you don't have any choice about anything. That's biological determinism. You just are following the program. And you're doing what you were programmed by Mother Nature to do. And there's no meaning to anything. That's a world that secularists would have us buy into. That life literally has no meaning. And, and if you're honest with our, yourself about that interpretation, you're no more significant than the chair you're sitting in. Literally, you're a batch of chemicals in a certain form and function, and so is that chair. And you have no more meaning than it does. That's life according to the humanist minus God. God did not design it that way. God gave us a life that was designed and patterned after His own nature and character, and He breathed His own Spirit into us, and He gave us a choice. And He made it very plain. You can have anything you want. You can do anything you want. This whole place is yours. I've given it to you. It's beautiful. It's lush. It has everything you need. And it has me. I will walk with you in its midst. I will be with you every day. I will, I will be to you everything you need. But I want you to choose me. I don't want you to have to do this because I made you that way. I want you to choose me, to love me because you want to, because that's how I love you. And there came the day when Adam and Eve said, we don't think we want to do that. In fact, we think we want to go our own way and do our own thing, and we'd just rather you bow out, God. We don't want to love you. It's the great divorce. It's man walking away from a relationship with God. And God said, if you reject me, I am your life. I am the source of your being. I am eternity for you. I am goodness. I am all that you need to bless you. 
When you walk away from me, you forfeit that. And Adam and Eve reaped a whirlwind and plunged the world into darkness and sin. And all of the disasters that have followed are because of choices they made and we have made after them. Because we've all been infected with the rebellion and the disease of sin. But God did not close the book. He started writing another chapter. A love chapter. As He began to pursue us throughout all of human history, calling to anyone who would listen, Adam, where are you? Come back to me. Noah, come back to me. Abraham, come back to me. Jacob, come back to me. Again and again, God interposed Himself, revealed Himself, demonstrated His power, and in one way or another, met people through history in the revelation of His love and of His person and of His glory, and said, come back. I want to restore the relationship. He gave the law to explain His character. He instituted the sacrifices to point to the cross. And in every way possible, God has been seeking to bring us back home to Him. His desire is to draw us back to His heart and to His family. And He promised that one day He would send a Redeemer. That one day, because the blood of bulls and goats could not adequately cover or or cleanse from the effect of sin, that He would send His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us to make a way back. You know, a lot of times we think that when bad things happen, what do you what do you hear most often? What did I do? That God would bring this into my life. I think more often than not, we mistake the opposition of the devil trying to turn our heart away from God for an act of God. We look at the things that put roadblocks in our way that hurt us and damage us and cause us grief. And and we say, what did I do that God would do this to me? But the fact is, God's not doing it. We are reaping the harvest of sin's seed that we chose. And we are experiencing the opposition of the enemy who desires to keep driving us away from God. And we do not realize that the Scripture says, do you not understand that it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance? I'm not saying that God does not on occasion use judgment and use adversity 
And in fact, oftentimes, even when the devil is behind it, God is able to uh, step into that circumstance and in our weakness and desperation reveal himself and bring us to himself. That which the enemy meant for evil and for destruction turns out to be a blessing as God shows us a way out of the darkness. But God's first choice is always to bless us. It is always to fill our lives with good things. He makes His sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He gives the rain. If you're a farmer, if you live in an agrarian culture, if the harvest is the life blood of your future. Rain and sunshine are really, really, really important. And the Scripture says that God blesses the wicked and the righteous alike in provision. He keeps feeding us. He keeps caring for us. He keeps loving us. He has been pursuing lost humanity for centuries out of His great compassion. God's deepest desire is that we come back home to Him and that the relationship be restored. I wish I knew a way that I could Plant these truths in your heart so that you would never forget them. When you're facing serious illness, when the car accident happens, when the job is lost, when the loved one rejects you and files for divorce, when the child in rebellion becomes the prodigal, And you wonder, why is God doing this to me? God is not doing this to you. He loves you. He wants to walk with you through it. We made a mess, but God wants to come into the midst of it and love us and walk with us and weep with us and rejoice with us, and provide for us, until that day He takes us safely into His presence. That's His love for us. In fact, the Scripture says, Behold, I have loved you with an everlasting love. How many people have lived everlasting? The the everlasting part is not referring to human beings. It's referring to the intensity and the depth of God's love. I love you with a love that can never end. It is an everlasting love. You, You cannot stop my love for you. You can't break it. You can't frustrate it to the point that it will cease. I will always love you. Who do you know that can love you like that? 
Name me the person for whom there is nothing that would make them stop loving you. And God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, actually, it is possible in Jesus Christ to love that way. It is possible to love unconditionally, but not without Him. That is a quality of God's love. We can't, we can't love like that apart from Him. There, there's a limit to every human being. But for God, there is no limit. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Zephaniah 3.17 is an amazing verse that kind of opens the vista of heaven and gives us a glimpse of God. And it says, He rejoices over us with singing. You know, the, 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 the cherubim and the seraphim fly around the throne crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. They exalt Him. They magnify Him. The angels fall down and worship Him. And God, in the middle of all of that worship and adoration of His person, is singing over us. Isn't that remarkable? That God is singing about us. I wonder what he sings. I'm not going to try, but I wonder what he's singing. How much he loves us. How precious we are to him. He's singing the song of a lover. Of his beloved. That he delights in us. That he rejoices in us. That He is excited about us. If we could just get a hold of that. How much He loves us. That while all the angels of heaven are worshiping Him, He's singing about us. Isn't that remarkable? The Scripture tells us in Luke 15.7 that when one sinner repents, all the angels of heaven are crying out. They're, they're shouting with joy. And God is rejoicing in the midst of them. He, he's like the prodigal, the father of the prodigal, that runs out the gate to welcome that one home. As he dances for joy. Over one sinner that comes back. And the angels of heaven marvel at the mystery of the love of God for human beings. I think as Jesus crested the Mount of Olives and looked down on the holy city, all these things were in his heart. As he thought about all those people down there, his people that rejected him again and again and again, and they will reject him yet again. It broke his heart. He wept. 
He weeps over us as well. He weeps over lost people. God's heart is breaking. He is a holy God. He must deal with sin. That's a part of of His sadness. That He cannot ignore it. He can't wink it away and pretend that it doesn't exist. He has to deal with it. Hell is real. But it wasn't made for us. It was made for the devil and his angels. And unfortunately, many, many people have chosen to follow him right into it. But God's heart toward us is love. And for me, that was what was all going through the mind of Jesus. As he looked down on the holy city, not so holy, really. And he wept over Jerusalem because so many times he had reached out. And so many times they had said, no, don't want you. Adam, no, want to go my own way. Israel, no, I don't want you. Are you here this morning still in the darkness of sin? Are you here and what I'm saying to you is beginning to stir in your heart as the Holy Spirit drives it home that God loves you and wants to bring you home. You can come to Him this morning. Open your heart. Invite Him in. Ask Him to forgive your past, your sin, the things you know you've done wrong and deserve justly punishment for. But Jesus has taken that all on the cross. And today He will forgive And He will cleanse you. And He will welcome you. He loves you. He wants to be your constant companion and guide and friend. And if you're here this morning and you know Him, do you see the world the way He sees it? Do you, do you perceive His love for lost people? Do they matter to you? Nothing pleases the Father more than when we, His children, bear the message of His love to those who do not know it and invite them to come back to the Father. That's our mission. Until the day He calls us home, work for the night is coming when our work is done. Father, we ask this morning in Jesus' name for the power of Your Holy Spirit to come upon us to anoint those of us who know You
with the mighty baptism of your Spirit to be your witnesses, anew and afresh. And Lord, for those who don't, will you in this moment touch their heart that they would not leave this place without being reconciled to you, the forgiveness of sin, the new birth in the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.